from the University of Cambridge and the Center of Governance and Human Rights. This is Declarations. I'm Katrin Wittig. And I'm Max Curtis. In this episode, we went off the beaten track to Queen's College, Cambridge, for a special event with Amnesty International. From June to October 2017, the US-led coalition launched an aggressive and highly destructive military campaign in Raqqa, Syria, to oust the so-called Islamic State from the city. More than 80% of the city was destroyed via aerial bombardments, leaving Raqqa the most destroyed city in modern times, and over 1,600 civilians were killed. To analyze this enormous scale of destruction, Amnesty began an equally enormous investigative effort. For the past two years, since the 2017 campaign, they've combined on-the-ground research with open-source analysis conducted by digital activists in order to assess the destruction. That's meant recruiting students, including here at Cambridge, to look through the sheer amount of data as part of the Digital Verification Corps, or DVC. In this effort, Amnesty visited more than 200 strike locations in Raqqa and interviewed more than 400 witnesses and survivors. Meanwhile, over 3,000 digital activists in 124 countries microtask the research by analyzing a vast database of 2 million satellite images, frame by frame, to chart and timeline the aerial bombardment. You can see the fruits of their efforts on the Amnesty website at raka.amnesty.org, where interactive maps are interwoven with stories of the victims, a very powerful account on what was lost and what's been left behind. And to present their findings, Amnesty and the DVC came to Queen's College, Cambridge, for a panel discussion crossed with an exhibition featuring photographs, interactive screens, and even a virtual reality experience. Declarations was invited to the event to hear from the panel, explore the exhibition, and speak to some of the visitors. In a moment, you'll hear from three of the panelists, featuring Donatella Rivera, a senior crisis advisor at Amnesty who's worked for over 20 years investigating dangerous conflict zones and war crimes. Sam Dubberly, the manager of the Digital Verification Corps, and Orly Skrobik, a former Declarations member who also worked on the Raqqa project last year during her MPhil here at Cambridge. Unlike, for example, the uh, US-led military operation in Iraq in, in 2003, uh, where there was a lot of uh, boots on the ground and a lot of soldiers getting killed, uh, this, Raqqa and before that Mosul in Iraq was a new way of doing warfare entirely remotely. There were no coalition forces present on the ground, so there was no risk to, um, to the coalition forces. It was airstrikes and uh, artillery strikes. Uh, and because more and more conflicts are fought in, um, in urban residential areas, um, this kind of doing business is, is not acceptable in terms of the amount of damage that was done uh, to civilians and to civilian infrastructure. Uh, so as 
Amnesty International, we, um, myself and, and the colleague, went to Raqqa several times. All in all, I spent several months in, um, in Raqqa between uh, around Raqqa in 2017 and then immediately uh, at the end of the war from 2018, uh, January 2018, when every single street looked like this, the rubble hadn't yet been removed. producer on Declarations, and she's here with us, and uh, she just did a VR exploration of Raqqa, right? That's right. Um, so some of the things that um, we saw, I saw was um, the street, which was in rubbles, and then when you um, focus on a certain point for a while, um, you enter the house, and you see um, what, what it looks like inside, what the family went through, and you see the father pointing at the place where he buried his children. It's an incredibly immersive, um, in all sense of, senses of the word, way to experience the daily lived experience of um, what goes on in the lives of civilians there. And it also, um, as a student of law, for me, it, it shows the lived experience of the law that I studied and how, like, even though these things may be legal in the international law sense of the word may not exactly be legitimate and it may not exactly reflect um, a, 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 a way of life that we would want for ourselves living in a first world country. Yeah. So we're here at Queen's College Cambridge at an art exhibition hosted by Amnesty International uh, and co-hosted by the Center of Governance and Human Rights, which of course also helps run uh, dec the Declarations podcast, which is what you're listening to now. We're exploring through this art exhibition here, and what's incredible, I think, isn't just the sort of scale of destruction that you expect from news reports and whatnot, but it's also the way that the snapshots here are so segmented, and they make you aware of how segmented it is. This talk and this exhibition are littered with insinuations that you really can't grasp the full scale of the conflict. I'm staring right now at a map filled with red dots, which are sort of difficult because I'm a bit colorblind. But close up, you can see exactly how completely destroyed the city is. We're talking here about a 2017, uh, from June to October 2017, coalition airstrike uh, between the US, the UK, and France, where artillery shells and more per supposedly precision um, airstrikes destroyed more than 80% of the city of Raqqa in Syria. More than 1,600 civilians were killed, thousands more were injured. We're seeing images like a blue pen laid against a massive gray artillery shell, uh, which only have about 100 meters of margin of error, so they're hardly precise. Um, a tableau of victims of the dead. Um, and we're hearing about how ultimately this narrative of precision is meant to erase the real lived cost of war among the people here, the people whose faces we see, the people who end up living in these spaces after they become rubble, after the ghost of Raqqa is sort of laid right on top of 
the memory of it that people are keeping alive by, um, as we heard from one of our previous um, interviewees, trying to rebuild and trying to reconstruct just through making shops and going to schools riddled with bullet holes and covered with um, ISIS graffiti. is also not providing help for civilians who were killed and injured. Um, and so it's not just about those who are no longer there, uh, many of whom are, were the breadwinners, but it also for many children, this little girl lost her right leg and her left leg is very badly injured. She cannot stand on it. Um, she's 11 years old. She lost her mom and three sisters and her life is ruined and she has uh, she comes from a very poor family and she has no hope of getting the medical care that she needs. One, because it's not available in the immediate environment in Raqqa and the family cannot afford to send her somewhere else and the coalition isn't taking responsibility uh, for these cases. So that was really the aim of, um, of the investigation, to shine light on these cases. Um, the situation of the schools, this is this was taken uh, earlier this year. Children are going to school in schools that look like this. After they were deprived of education for three and a half years under ISIS, now they have a chance to go back to school in an environment which is not safe physically and which is um, emotionally very charged and very challenging for little children in schools that are you know, walls uh, ridden with bullets and full of uh, graffiti from ISIS. Um, so, you know, they, that, that's um, what children, the environment that they are um, growing up in uh, right now. Now, apart from all this work that I was able to do on the ground, we had two other components to this project. Uh, one is the digital verification work. Uh, and one was a project that we opened to the public, which was called Stride Tracker, and it was done um, uh, by having a, a purpose-built platform where we uh, had satellite imagery for the whole of Raqqa, and it was farmed out to volunteers who signed up for, for the project. Um, and it was done uh, with the usual uh, microtasking system where the, Im the satellite imagery of Raqqa was broken into two million chips and any individual that signed up would get a, a very simple tutorial online and would then participate in looking at when the, looking at different images taken at different time of the same spot to see when a particular building uh, had been destroyed or damaged, and this was done for 11,000 buildings. Um, and this was the uh, result of the project, how many people participated. Um, people were, several people were carrying out the same task, so there was a lot of peer review, and then the cases were, were ultimately uh, reviewed by our specialist satellite image analyst. And on that note, and this is some other um, um, 
projects, issues that we've worked on through, um, uh, through this system. But this is a good point to hand over to some about the other component, which was the digital verification uh, work that was done by um, maybe some of you who are here, but certainly students who are at this university. So the Digital Verification Corps is an initiative set up by Amnesty International in 2016 to engage volunteers worldwide who are based at universities to work with Amnesty to source and discover and verify uh, content online on social media of human rights abuses and to make sure that if Amnesty uses those in its research reports that it is actually what it says it is, that these are the events and the place and the time and the people uh, that we are told it is, so we can actually use that as evidence of, of human rights abuses. You were on the Declarations podcast last year, um, and you were also doing a lot of work with the DVC. Can you tell us what that actually is? So the Digital Verification Corps is a project with various universities around the world that do open source investigation, and we look into mostly human rights abuses. Um, we do this using tools that are freely available on the internet, so Google Earth, and we use content from Facebook, Twitter, to um, geolocate and verify human rights abuses. We do this under the supervision, I guess, of Amnesty International. So they're the ones who coordinate all of the digital verification core groups. Um, and we're the ones that's based in Cambridge, essentially. And yeah, how many other places have a DVC? So there's one in South Africa, one in Hong Kong. Uh, UC Berkeley has one. Um, University of Essex, University yeah, of Essex one. has one, yeah, exactly. So we heard at the panel discussion that there were, what, like 3,000 people involved across like 100-something countries and, you know, thousands and thousands of hours, like 4,000 hours, um, which is about two and a half years of work um, collectively going into this. So what's the value of this kind of like micro-research? Exactly, by... I think it's taking an insurmountable task and making it a project that can come to fruition. It would have been impossible for the Amnesty team to do this scale of project alone. And I think it's very important work that needs to get done. The reality of it is that there are some people who can do micro-tasks without any prior experience. So I think that Amnesty is smart to leverage that. and give also people access to human rights investigation without necessarily having a professional background in that. It's meaningful to be part of a project that Amnesty International is um, building. And then you have, you can go up in levels and do sort of stuff like the Digital Verification Core or then be an Amnesty researcher and do this full time. But there's sort of scaling down and, and breaking down the project into smaller pieces makes it more achievable and also I think more inclusive. And more, uh, it's mutually beneficial as well for the students, like you said, to be able to work with an incredibly powerful organization and also so for Amnesty to have this kind of like source of very dedicated um, and very intelligent labor of students. Yeah, absolutely. I think something you talked about during the panel's discussion that I found interesting was about the value of this research being fully accessible in a lot of ways. You know, that this is, like you said, um, taken from things like Google Earth or Google Maps, that there's uh, students have access to these kinds of tools. And that's important because it means that people can actually, you know, use this. You don't need specialist tools to get into it. Um, do you think there's a relationship between 
that kind of access and other kinds, like the fact that we all in some ways have access to this tragedy and the things going on around us. Like what's the connection between this work that you do and the real world on the ground situation for you, like as a researcher? I think it's a tricky question because it's easy to gamify the situation, especially when you're doing work like verification where you're trying to identify a location or whether or not a picture is actually reflecting what you think it reflects. It's easy to get caught up in the ultimate goal, which is to locate it and stop thinking about what this picture actually means in a broader context and whose home this represents or whose city this represents. Um, so I think, uh, speaking for my team, we've had to have... Um, yeah, so we're here uh, with Donatella Rovera, who is a senior crisis advisor uh, for Amnesty International. Um, and uh, we were um, especially interested, at some point you said it was the cheapest way to wage war uh, on Raqqa. Uh, but at the same time, so inaccurate, and there was a large margin of error. So we were just wondering if you could elaborate a little bit about this. I mean, of course, a lot of money was spent on this war um, because, you know, these weapons do cost money. But they were both in terms of the air-delivered munitions, so the big MK-type bombs, as well as the ground launch strike, the artillery shell, what was used in Raqqa predominantly was your cheapest of the range type of weapons. Um, they used an awful lot and there is certainly an argument that would be that it, they could have used a lot less but more sophisticated and so that would have resulted in a much less destruction uh, of lives and livelihood. And can so, you talk a bit more about the margin of error uh, of some of the artillery strikes that uh, you mentioned? So in the end, um, you had this very powerful citation of um, some of the coalition members saying that this was actually a very accurate way to wage war, but then you actually showed a margin of error, um, meaning that in the end it wasn't as accurate as it was advertised. No, it, it wasn't accurate at all when we talk about the artillery. I mean, this is not our analysis, my personal analysis or the analysis of Amnesty International. Every military person you know, would agree that artillery shells, they're, they're weapons that were designed for the battlefield when you had armies facing each other across the trenches, not for use in an urban residential area full of civilians. Uh, artillery shells today can be equipped with guiding devices that reduces the margin of error from 100 to 300 meters to down to maybe 20, 30, 40 meters, which is still unacceptable. But actually in Raqqa, I, I'm not sure that they used even a single one of the artillery shells with guiding devices. If they did, it would have been less than 1% the overwhelming majority or the totality of the artillery shells that were used in Raqqa were the unguided ones. But as I said, even the guided ones uh, should not be used in an urban setting where five meters can make the difference between a legitimate military target and a house full of civilians. Um, if you're not able to pinpoint a target, then, then you should not use that weapon in the vicinity of civilians. As for the air-delivered munitions, 
the bombs that they used were precise, but they had a they had a very big impact radius, so they would create damage way, way, way beyond the point of impact. So they may have been, they may have hit the right target, but they destroyed so much beyond that target again because it is not particularly sophisticated types of munitions. They are big, designed to take out entire buildings. Uh, there were also some munitions like Hellfire rockets that have a much smaller uh, impact radius, but those were not widely used. Um, the, the, the biggest use was of the older, cheaper types of munitions. Ultimately, that's... And, and the amount of... Uh, manpower or woman power that was that was devoted to to verifying those targets for the air delivered munitions was was clearly insufficient in many of the cases that we looked at where we had testimonies from members of the um, of the Kurdish led forces on the grounds who were the ones who were calling in the airstrikes who were telling us that airstrikes that they called would come in within 10 or 15 minutes which means that very little effort and time was put into verifying those targets. Yeah, I found it really interesting, the image that you had on the screen of this bright red circle of uncertainty, you know, like a several The margin blocks. of error. Yeah, the margin of error being this actually quite gigantic area of a city, you know, tons of buildings, and it could be anywhere within them. Yeah. Um, and I also thought what was interesting was the way you talked about this um, the narrative of precision, this idea by the coalition forces that they, you know, they allegedly could be quite precise more than any other war, but that really obscures the real human cost of the war. Well, also because they, because this was not a particularly precise military campaign, uh, the the manner in which they chose to prosecute this particular military operation could give no other result because it wasn't very precise. Uh, and, and in fact, the commander of the forces at the time, General Townsend, who's now no longer the commander of the coalition, but is the commander of AFRICOM, the US forces um, who are launching strikes in places like Somalia and elsewhere in Africa, he was the one who had, on the one hand, he said, you know, this is the most precise air campaign in, in, in history. And at the same time, he said, we hit every boat. At that time, everybody knew, and he should have known as well, that using the river was pretty much the only way that civilians had to leave Raqqa. So to say we hit every boat is clearly uh, admitting that you know, there is no precision in that. And I think the point of this art exhibition, to me anyway, has been about how it's ultimately very easy to access empathy. It's very easy to show destruction and rubble and victims, dead bodies and children crying, and it's very easy to feel empathetic about that. But it's very difficult, this exhibition says, in order to get a sense of understanding, to really grasp intuitively and holistically the scale of the destruction, the scale of its responsibility, which extends not just to a handful of generals or soldiers, but more broadly, of course, across the world, across so many societies. And that understanding, too, isn't enough. 
understanding isn't going to be the be-all, end-all of research or human rights discourse. But at least for now, it's something. That's all from us here. For more declarations, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at DeclarationsPod. You can also check out our website, declarationspod.com, where every episode has a companion piece with more information about each week's topics, written by our show notes writer, Katerina O'Mellon. Our media manager is Ms. Bamalik. Our sound editor is Helen Jennings. Matt Mahmoudi and Max Curtis are our producers. And Jing Mintan is our executive producer. And you can hear more from our panelists on the next episode of Declarations. <laughs> <laughs>